Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for January 19, 2018. I'm Brian Cardile. This is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient constitutional and appellate law questions. Today we'll hear competing viewpoints on a major election law case argued last week before the U.S. Supreme Court in which an Ohio program used to clear ineligible voters from the state's rolls is being challenged as a violation of federal law. As part of the procedure at issue, the state sends registered voters who haven't been to the ballot box in two years a notice seeking confirmation that the person registered on Ohio's voter rolls indeed still lives at a given address. Ohio says its practice comports with the National Voter Registration Act's directive to take reasonable steps to remove deceased or relocated voters from the rolls, but challengers contend it violates that same law's prescription of using voter inactivity as a basis to cancel someone's registration because it uses inactivity as the trigger for sending those confirmation notices. We'll hear from competing Amici, Bob Popper, director of the Election Integrity Project at Judicial Watch and the former deputy chief of the Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division's voting section, who believes the state's practice is lawful. We'll also hear from Addison Francois, professor at Georgetown Law and the director of the school's Voting Rights Institute, who authored a brief opposing Ohio's program as violative of the NVRA and particularly burdensome on marginalized groups, in particular service members and veterans. But before hearing from our guests, let's get to our opening briefs. In our own Supreme Court, a ruling yesterday determined the contours of the Right to Repair Act, a 2002 law passed to allow homeowners to bring construction defect negligence actions in the absence of any actual damages. Two years earlier, the state high court had ruled such tort actions could not be premised on defects that had yet to create some real harm, be it property damage or personal injury. As part of the law, a pre-litigation procedure requires homeowners to notice builders to the defects and allow them a chance to cure before filing suit. At issue was whether the act's pre-litigation procedures extend to traditional common law tort claims, those based on construction defects that have resulted in damages and the sort of suits that could have been brought without issue before the law was passed. Indeed, a unanimous court found the act does apply to those suits, meaning tort claims over construction defects, however premised, must go through the pre-litigation procedures outlined by the law. It was a busy week in the Ninth Circuit, where a number of rulings and an especially salient appeal that might well skip over the appellate court altogether merit notice. Yesterday, a panel issued guidance as to just what sort of material relating to federal prosecutors' use of electronic surveillance and criminal investigations may be withheld by the Department of Justice as either attorney work product or as descriptions of law enforcement techniques and procedures in the face of Freedom of Information Act requests. The panel's ruling split the difference between the DOJ's position and that of the ACLU, finding that certain of the materials at issue, those providing original legal analyses, may be withheld as work product, but the analyses that have been incorporated in public documents like court filings or that are purely descriptive must be yielded to FOIA requests. On Wednesday, the court refined rules relating to subject matter jurisdiction and diversity actions against corporations finding that despite high court precedent suggesting that a company's principal place of business is where it conducts most of its activity, and not simply where it holds board meetings for holding companies which tend to engage in fairly little activity, it would not be inappropriate to find their principal place of business to be its board meeting site, even as here, where the company has yet to hold any such meetings. The case was remanded, though, for some review as to whether a corporate entity was created simply for the purpose of creating diversity subject matter jurisdiction. But maybe the most noteworthy Ninth Circuit news this week was about an appeal the court might not even hear. One arising from the Northern District's preliminary injunction granted last week against the Department of Homeland Security's rescission of the DACA program, the DOJ has announced an attempt to 
leapfrog the appellate court and seek immediate SCOTUS review. For more on that is our Ninth Circuit reporter, Nick Sonnenberg, who's been reporting on this unusual procedural move. Nick, welcome to the show. Brian, thanks for having me. So last week, the the Northern District, to uh, to some pretty obstreperous reaction from the, the presidential administration here, ruled uh, or enjoined the Department of Homeland Security's rescission of, of the, the DACA program. And now the the president and the Department of Justice didn't seem too hopeful of their, their chances in the Ninth Circuit, perhaps looking at the track record, understandably so. They're, they're, they're going for a fairly high-difficulty uh, appellate maneuver here to, to avoid the Ninth Circuit. Tell me about uh, this procedure and, and, and why they're resorting to it, why they feel the need to, to jump over the Ninth Circuit. Is there some, some time pressure or is it just that they're um, so pessimistic about the outcome awaiting them at the, the Ninth Circuit? Right. Uh, so on Tuesday, the Department of Justice, in a statement released by Jeff Sessions, said that they were appealing uh, U.S. District Judge William Alsop's order in joining the ending of DACA uh, to the Ninth Circuit, but they said that they were taking the unusual step of planning to file um, a cert petition with the Supreme Court by the end of the week, effectively attempting to skip the Ninth Circuit's uh, review of the decision. Um, the the move, so to speak, is allowed under uh, 28 U.S. Code Section 1254, uh, which says that the Supreme Court in federal cases uh, can grant cert uh, to an appeal so long as it's made it effectively to a court of appeals. The court of appeals doesn't have to consider any briefs. It doesn't have to hear any arguments. It simply has to have made it to its docket. So that's what the uh, DOJ is attempting to do here. Um, in terms of timeliness, unlike uh, the first and second travel bans that uh, President Trump initiated, there's no set time uh, in which DACA would expire other than the self-imposed ending of the program that Trump um, decided earlier this month. Uh, but that being said, um, with anything that the uh, government is trying to do, they'd like to do it quickly. Um, and so this could be an attempt to try and get the case on the Supreme Court's calendar before it takes the summer recess. Um, usually cert petitions granted after January are punted to the next session. And if that were to happen, the Supreme Court wouldn't hear the uh, the DACA arguments if it were to take it until uh, October or November of next year, of this year, and an opinion wouldn't come until likely uh, winter of 2019. Okay, so the the appellate procedure is statutorily provided for, but we said un, uncommon. How how uncommon is it, and uh, when has it been used in, in the past, and, and to to what effect? Right, it is allowed, but it's certainly uncommon. And uh, like all sort of grants, it's up to the discretion of the Supreme Court to hear the case. Um, one federal appellate procedure professor that I spoke to uh, described it as happening once or twice every generation. Um, and usually the, the cases uh, in which the cert grants are, are given um, involve broad uses of executive power. Um, two of the more recent examples of this uh, were in United States versus uh, Nixon, uh, when a district court ordered uh, Nixon to release, or the, or the Nixon White House to release uh, all of the taping that had been done in the Oval Office relating to the Watergate uh, scandal. The district court ordered it, and the case went straight to the Supreme Court after being briefly appealed. Uh, similarly, the Supreme Court um, reviewed a district court decision when Ronald Reagan 
um, unilaterally moved litigation over asset seizures during uh, the um, Iranian hostage crisis into an arbitration tribunal. So it's it's certainly a rare procedure, um, and and not one granted lightly by the court or the, by the Supreme Court. Those those previous instances in which administrations have have resorted to this sort of emergency type, fairly drastic measure, and they come in the context of some pretty massive presidency-defining cases, and this is an important case, certainly, um, but it, it seems like it, it might not be quite as, as significant as, as those, uh, especially when one you know, considers the political winds that seem to surround it, suggesting that there may be a, a legislative fix to this DACA situation um, in not too long, um, potentially, although who knows. Um, is there any sense as to, as to whether the administration might have been premature in kind of using a, a drastic appellate strategy here, one they might have wanted to reserve if something um, more um, extreme um, comes along down the road? And certainly it seems like a, a possibility. Right. I mean, there's nothing that prevents the administration from using this procedure in a future case, but it did strike a number of experts I talked to as a little odd in this case, given the fact that um, Congress is at least in name trying hard to uh, to address this through the legislature. Uh, so it is perhaps a bit premature. Um, and, you know, given the Supreme Court's hesitancy to weigh in on other executive orders in the Trump administration, like the three travel bans thus far, um, it's not quite clear whether the Supreme Court would be inclined to hear this case. Though there has been some speculation that the Supreme Court uh, would, will likely consider um, these nationwide injunctions that have uh, been issued by district court judges in the near future. So this case could present an opportunity to address the legal merits of those injunctions. So ultimately, it's all a little bit unclear. Yeah, maybe uh, before I let you go, just a question about one other happening in the Ninth Circuit this week, a, a ruling in the case where folks had, had challenged uh, the constitutionality of, of laws invalidating in California prostitution or um, sex by, by hire between consenting adults. I believe the argument went that such private and consensual sexual activity should be protected under the, the, the U.S. Supreme Court decision from Lawrence v. Texas. Sounds like the Ninth Circuit did not go for that argument, but as you wrote previously after the case's uh, arguments a few months ago, uh, it had seemed that at least one or two justices were maybe more sympathetic than one might think to uh, the arguments um, in favor of, of uh, prostitution falling within the aegis of Lawrence v. Texas's uh, liberty interest protections. Right. Uh, so a group of activists, um, three sex workers as they describe themselves and one uh, potential client of those providing prostitution services, um, sued the Attorney General, um, then Kamala Harris, and a number of uh, Bay Area District Attorneys asserting a constitutional challenge to the criminal ban in California um, on prostitution. Uh, the District Court applied rational basis review and, and dismissed the case, um, and it went to the Ninth Circuit. Um, the lawyer who represented the plaintiffs, H. Lewis Serkin, uh, does a number of cases like these. He's from Ohio, and he told me that they filed this case expecting likely to lose at the district court level, knowing that the case would go to the Ninth Circuit and uh, hope that they would get a liberal panel. They 
to their dismay, got a fairly conservative panel by Ninth Circuit standards and were expecting things to not go as well as they had planned. Uh, but during oral arguments in November, judges, circuit judges uh, Connie Callahan and Carlos Bea seemed pretty receptive, um, at least to the the theory that they were asserting, which that being uh, that the decision in Lawrence v. Texas had radically changed the protection that uh, certain intimate behaviors and activities uh, receive under the Constitution. Um, at one point, Bea asked California's attorney, why should it be illegal to sell something that's legal to give away? Um, and Callahan basically forced uh, the California Attorney General's lawyer to explain why, why why Lawrence didn't do exactly what the plaintiffs were asserting. Um, but the Ninth Circuit ruled this week that, in fact, Lawrence v. Texas did not address prostitution, and that as of now, there's been no precedent to, you know, further elaborate on the type of sexual activity um, that's protected under Lawrence other than consensual gay activity. Uh, and so the court upheld California's prostitution ban. That seems like one case that uh, probably won't be before the U.S. Supreme Court anytime uh, too soon. But uh, uh, in any event, uh, Nick, as always, it's, it's been fun. Thanks for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. Last week, the Supreme Court entertained arguments as to whether Ohio was violating federal law by purging its voter rolls of folks who hadn't returned address confirmation notices after having been sent such notices by virtue of their not casting a ballot for two years. Bob Popper wrote an amicus brief on behalf of Judicial Watch, where he's the director of their election integrity project, previously was deputy chief in the voting section of DOJ's Civil Rights Division, and he joins us now to explain why, in his view, Ohio's practice is a proper method to ensure accurate voter registries. Mr. Popper, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you lead an, an amicus filing in, in this case, Houston versus A. Philip Randolph Institute. Worth noting here at the outset, this is not the first time that Judicial Watch has been involved in a case challenging Ohio's voting procedures and the way in which it maintains its election rolls. Your group has challenged Ohio's practices uh, directly previously. Is that correct? Can you, you tell me a bit about that uh, litigation? Sure. In 2012, Judicial Watch sued Ohio, alleging that it had not taken steps to remove ineligible registrants from the rolls as required by the NVRA, the same statute the Supreme Court is considering. Um, interestingly, in that case, uh, it was settled in 2014, and by that time I had joined Judicial Watch. And the settlement requires the state to undertake the very process that is being litigated before the Supreme Court. So while a lot of amicus briefs are merely presenting your view on a particular issue, in this case, our amicus brief was also defending in part our agreement with the state of Ohio. Sure, because now if the, the process is struck down, it would sort of vitiate that settlement that you had reached previously, you're saying? Yes. Um, in other words, uh, Ohio has a process whereby after two uh, years in which there's no voter activity, they send an address confirmation notice to the registrant's last address. And that process then leads ultimately to uh, either retaining the voter on the rolls or removing them if they don't respond after a certain waiting period. And we 
uh, ask the state in our settlement agreement to undertake that process every year instead of every two years, and they agreed. Turning to the case before the Supreme Court now, and um, before we get to the, the specific legal arguments, um, I'd like to ask just sort of the the story that you see that embodies this case. Obviously, as common in, in, in major litigation, the opposite sides tell very uh, different stories and, and frame the issues pretty differently. Um, here, there are, I suppose, sort of countervailing considerations brought to the fore by both sides. On one side, um, necessity and the desire for election integrity, and on the other side, you know, the concern for ensuring voting rights. Uh, I guess, just walk me through how you would you would like the Supreme Court to, to frame the, the issues here. Well, the National Voter Registration Act of 1993 was a compromise bill. It had two aspects to it, which you've identified in your question. The first is it was intended to increase access to federal voter rolls. In other words, having more people sign up to vote. The second aspect was in return for that greater access, there would also be a federal focus on election integrity. That is removing people from the voter rolls who shouldn't be there. And these two principles were enacted together. The statute actually lays them both out, both of these purposes in the text of the statute. And our interest, and we think the Supreme Court's interest, is in making sure that the statute is enforced as a whole. Um, there is an effort, and I would argue that this effort was pursued by the Obama administration to enforce only half of the statute, namely the access portion. Um, there's something not right, I think, about enforcing only half of a compromise bill. Um, in any event, it is important for a number of reasons to ensure that people who are on the voter rolls are actually eligible to vote and are properly registered and live within the state. Uh, speaking of a, a compromise uh, bipartisan bill, it sounds very uh, quaint uh, right right about now. But getting into the, <laughs> True. the bill, uh, digging into the, the bill or the act a little bit deeper, it's specifically at issue are, are sort of two sections. One that specifies that voters may not be removed from, from the rolls just by virtue of them having not exercised the right to vote for a specific period of time. And, and then a, another section just after that, specifying a, a procedure through which voters could be removed via notice that does sort of in tandem work with um, a time period of non-voting as a, a way to, to have that procedure work. I suppose, could you just outline for me those those two sections? Sure. And uh, it What's useful to understand is that before the NVRA was passed in 1993, a number of states had statutory schemes whereby voters were removed from the rolls simply for not voting. In other words, their registrations were canceled if in a given election or series of elections they didn't vote, and they had to re-register in order to vote. The NVRA put an end to that, that particular practice. It's mentioned in the legislative history. And in fact, it is ended by the text of the VRA, which says you cannot now remove someone from the voter rolls just for failing to vote. There has to be more. Well, the statute sets out what the more is. Um, basically, if someone is believed to have moved elsewhere for whatever reason, and we can get into what that reason might be, mm -hmm. but if someone is believed to have moved elsewhere, they are slated to receive a an address confirmation notice. And their response to that notice determines what happens next. If they respond and say, you know, I'm still here, then that's the end of it. But if they don't respond, 
then there's a statutory waiting period of from two to four years. And at the expiration of that period, and you know, the way the statute rather clumsily phrases it, is two general federal elections, which can be from two to four years, depending on where you are in time. Um, after that period, the registration may be canceled. Now, I believe that there was perceived to be at least an apparent conflict between these two provisions, because if you can't remove someone just for failing to vote, how is it that you can remove them, according to the NVRA, after two general federal elections, which seems to be, in other words, that they didn't vote for that period of time. Mm -hmm. uh, in 2002, a clarifying amendment was passed, which said, you know, while you can't remove someone for failing to vote, you know, in addition to that particular clause in the statute was amended to say, but of course you can remove someone after you've sent them an address confirmation notice and they fail to vote. And it cross-referred to other provisions of the statute. Now, on, on that latter point about the, the 2002 clarifying amendment from the Help America Vote Act, um, that's a place in which you and, and the Sixth Circuit here part ways in your, in your reading of that amendment. Can you, can you tell me a bit more about that? Here, the Sixth Circuit um, had ruled that the, the Ohio program the, um, of removing voters by this process uh, that you outlined was was not uh, in comportment with the, the relevant statutes. Yes, uh, the decision was a three-judge panel, and it was a two-to-one ruling, uh, with the dissenting judge basically agreeing with the position we've set out, or I guess you could say we agree with the position the dissenting judge set out. What the two-judge majority ruled was that it would be reading the statute to hold superfluous language if you looked at the exception, the addition in 2002, solely to refer to what was already in the statute, that would be superfluous. And so what it must mean is that the exception sets forth everything that's allowed and anything not in that exception is excluded. All right. And this is pursuant to what we use to interpret statutes, which are called canons of statutory construction. They're not part of any specific federal law, but they are understood principles that people have used for as long as there have been written statutes to understand what someone probably meant by a comma, by a use of a particular word, by a particular construction. And they're not only immensely useful and practical and in many cases commonsensical, uh, they're adopted by courts. Courts use these, and there is a principle that indicates that a superfluous construction is not favored. You don't assume that Congress was simply restating what it already had stated. You give every word force. However, there is an exception to that principle, which is that if an amendment is simply clarifying ambiguous language, the principles of superfluous language don't apply to it. It's not superfluous. It's making something clear that wasn't clear. And that's what we argue happened, and the two judges on the Sixth Circuit argued the opposite, and uh, since they're the judges, uh, that is how the case was decided. So moving on then, um, there's another pretty fundamental difference between your uh, perspective here and the, the majority of the Sixth Circuits, um, that being what exactly, or how, how to exactly assign causation here. Uh, in other words, what in fact causes the removal of a uh, a registrant from the voter rolls? Is it the fact 
of their not voting for a period of time, or is it that failure to return the notice that is sent because of a failure to vote? Um, and you say that the the Sixth Circuit has set up a, a but for cause approach, uh, meaning that because the, the the fact of non-voting is a certainly an element of the causation here, um, that that would disqualify it against the NVRA, which says you know folks can't be removed for failing to vote. Uh, but you say the focus should really be on on the proximate cause. The the thing that is really to to blame in that is the the failure to return the notice. I suppose um, walk me through the distinction you're, you're you're drawing there. There there is no mention specifically of but for or proximate cause in the the appellate ruling. Is there? No, no. Um, I guess uh, the best way to understand it is uh, we were trying to make sense of or analytically interpret what the Sixth Circuit was saying. What do people mean when they say because or one thing caused another? In other words, uh, what's the cause of my sitting here at the office right now? Uh, Was it the subway train or metro train that got me here? Was it the bus I took to the metro? Was it uh, my alarm clock? You know, and uh, the common sense of it is that when someone says one thing caused another, they're usually referring to something that immediately caused it or is next to it in time. They don't refer back indiscriminately to every single possible cause. And we felt that that's what the Sixth Circuit was doing. So it's not necessarily that the discussion of causes in the statute, but courts do interpret statutes according to their most likely ordinary meaning, using the words in an ordinary way. Now, what causes voters to be removed? Is it because they didn't vote? Um, I think that the ordinary English interpretation is no. Because they didn't vote, voters got a, a address confirmation notice in the mail. It's because they didn't respond to that that they were removed. That doesn't mean that they were removed because they didn't vote. The address confirmation notice doesn't determine anything. It depends how they respond to it. If they respond to it, the matter is over. So what we were arguing and trying to explain was why it is that the true cause of the voters' removal was not their failure to vote, but was the more obvious and immediate procedure whereby they received a letter in the mail and didn't respond to it. I suppose, uh, I mean, it, it seems like it could be a bit of a, a messy pursuit trying to say which of the two is the cause. If, you know, in fact, you, it's fair to say they they both bear on the causation. But there was a point, I think, raised an, an argument here, jumping ahead a little bit by Justice Alito, um, where he said you could just sort of set up the statute or have the rule saying you can't be removed solely because of um, failing to vote. And then that would kind of avoid this line drawing between or this uh, uh, hair splitting between which is the exact cause. Uh, is that maybe an approach that would comport with the statute, you think? Well, I, I suppose that that would clarify its meaning. But I really don't think that anyone, when they're talking common English, when they're using the word cause, refers back to all links in a causal chain without discrimination. We all have a sense that the cause is the thing that most people would say resulted in something else happening. And we feel that we're arguing the common sense interpretation of that. And we feel, and we argue, that that interpretation is supported by the laws of at least 19 states that use non-voting somewhere 
in the chain of list maintenance. You know, perhaps not even to send a letter, but somewhere along the line, the fact that someone hasn't voted is used as evidence that the person may not reside in the state anymore. Um, and I think that uh, the Supreme Court certainly seemed to be uh, considering the same issue. I, I, I know that during oral argument, uh, counsel for uh, the plaintiffs in the case below had was asked, um, what would happen if a letter were sent that was non-forwardable? And just if it bounced back a number of times, if it was sent over and over again, it kept bouncing back, then at that point you could remove someone or presume that they're they're no longer eligible to vote in the state, that they're registered somewhere else. Um, and he responded that that would be acceptable. And the justices pounced. I mean, J Justice Roberts said, well, isn't that making failure to vote or presumed failure to vote part of the chain of causation? Um, you know, and so I, I think that is a major problem with uh, the plaintiff's argument in this case. I think it's using cause in a strained and unnatural way. Um, and it's, you know, proximate cause is how lawyers assign technical terms to what are otherwise very common sense words and discussions and, and concepts. But I think that the true test is what an ordinary person would understand the notion of cause to mean. And I think that uh, the defendants come out better and uh, our position comes out better on that argument. Um, uh, another bit of persuasion that you muster on your side in the amicus filing is, is guidance provided by the Department of Justice. Of course, it's something you'd be familiar with having spent eight years in the voting section that the Civil Rights Division there. Um, but this seems to me, I suppose, uh, not as clear of a beacon as, as it could be considering there has been some guidance from the department uh, on both sides of this issue, including, you know, most recently in this case, when it was before the Sixth Circuit from the previous presidential administration um, that suggested the case should go the, the, the other way from that way you, you argue. How, how persuasive is, is your argument when it comes to guidance from the Department of Justice? Well, you know, you also have to look at what was required and in, in addition to how, you know, whether contradictory positions were taken. It is simply true that in uh, 2007 or 8, the United States Department of Justice required Philadelphia, the city of Philadelphia, to do exactly what the Department of Justice argued in 2016. The state of Ohio was forbidden to do. That's just a very striking fact. Now, you're right that the department has taken different positions on this at different times. And that certainly does cut against any sort of definitive reading about what all administrations have always believed. But, you know, that striking fact remains. Okay, uh, on, on to, to policy considerations. What is your, your, your principal concern uh, from a policy perspective if, if the Ohio program uh, to remove the voters in this manner is, is struck down? Well, I have a number of concerns. I mean, one I've already expressed to you, and it's simply that the NVRA is a compromise bill. Um, and as you point out, uh, the kind of bill that doesn't happen so much anymore. And it is important to honor Congress's intent by enforcing the entire compromise. Um, aside from that, there are larger issues involved when voter rolls are not kept clean. Um, part of these issues, a number of these issues pertain to the possibility for fraud. Uh, 
And in this respect, I think it's important to note that this discussion is not like the other hot national discussion about voter ID, about presenting an identification card with your photo on it in order to vote on election day. This is a larger issue. I think that most experts would agree that absentee ballot fraud is much more common than impersonation fraud. And making sure that people who are uh, on the rolls are really resident within the state would work against the ability to engage in absentee ballot fraud. Double voting is also a kind of voting fraud that's more common than impersonation fraud. And that's simply where someone lived in, say, California, and they moved to Nevada. And on Election Day, they vote in both states. Okay, And, and that's another issue that's not addressed by having a voter or a photo ID, because those people are who they say they are. It's a different kind of fraud. Lastly, I would point to the relevance of having clean voter rolls in other areas. For example, get out the vote efforts. Often rely on the addresses and the information supplied in voter registration lists kept by states. It is more expensive to conduct a, a voter education or voter get out the vote effort if you are mailing thousands of pieces of mail to addresses that are no longer valid. So the NVRA really addresses in its compromise many more issues than you know are discussed in other areas of the law. And it's a valid exercise to try to enforce the entire statute. I suppose the last thing I would say is that the last administration, the Obama administration, showed remarkably little interest in enforcing the second part, the integrity provisions of the NVRA. I brought the last uh, Section 8 list maintenance lawsuit that the Department of Justice ever brought, and that was in 2007, and that was settled in 2009. In the intervening years, no such cases have been brought by the Department of Justice. Um, it should be interested in enforcing this entire statute, and I believe that's an important policy consideration as well. Let me just throw a few countervailing arguments or points at you here, some pulled from oral arguments, some from the, the opposing briefs. You know, one being that um, it does seem that no matter the, the intention of the Ohio program, that it will eliminate some perfectly um, eligible voters from the, the roles. I guess, one, do you concede that that's true? Do you think that uh, you know that's just sort of a byproduct of any program is not going to work with 100% efficiency on the margins. There might be some suboptimal outcomes, um, but it does seem like some people will be eliminated. Just if they, you know, if they don't check their mail, they think what was sent to them was junk mail, and then they don't vote for a couple of years, they'll they'll be knocked off the rolls um, and lose their fundamental right to vote, even though they, they are perfectly otherwise eligible. Well, I would say that all election integrity efforts will have mistakes. I mean, if you're going to have anything other than no registration law, register whenever you want, and your registration is permanent, anything other than that system, you're going to have errors, of course. But there are a number of things to point out. I mean, the first is simply this. What happens is that you lose your registration. This is not like losing a job or like uh, contracting a major illness. I mean, this is not a major life event. Uh, let's just you know, point that out at the outset. What you do is you simply re-register. 
And what's more, consider the process by which someone will have been removed from the rolls under this Ohio procedure. If they didn't vote for two years, and then they're sent a letter and they throw it away or ignore it, and then they don't vote for the next two to four years, so that's four to six years of no voter activity, at that point, their registration will be removed. If at any point in that period of four to six years, they show up and vote, they can. They're allowed to show up. They don't have to vote provisional ballot. They can vote on election day and the process stops. And what's more, if at any point during that process, they make a phone call. I mean, if you haven't voted for five years, you might want to call the elections department at the Secretary of State's office and determine whether you still are registered to vote. And then the last point I'd make is simply this. Um, 16 states allow same-day registration. 14 states, 14 of them, allow same-day registration on election day. And I, I guess this ties back to my first point. It's simply not that hard to register to vote. It's simply not that earth-shattering of an event to have your registration canceled. And if it is indeed canceled after all of these safeguards and after all of these years and after your failure to make any contact with state authorities, it's a simple thing to reinstate. But you are going to need to undertake election integrity efforts. And yes, they can never be perfect. That sort of connects to my, my next question about the imperfection of the, the system. Uh, I, I don't know if much was made about this argument, um, but it seems that sending these notices through the mail, uh, as noble as the USPS's service to uh, the country is, isn't maybe as reliable as it might have been a generation ago. People don't tend to do a whole lot of official correspondence and official business through paper mail these days, doing most everything on online. Um, is there some concern that now or going forward that the uh, in, ensuring um, voter roll accuracy through the mail is just less reliable because people might not be expecting something as important as that to to, to reach them through that that medium? Well, I mean, there are a lot of important government documents we get through the mail. You know, I, I don't know how uh, everyone gets their uh, W-2s or their tax refunds um, or their driver's license information. I mean, it's still used for important government documents. And I think that since there's never been any system other than, um, you know, mail uh, confirmation in most states for voter registration. I think it's it's sort of what people expect. Um, if the system could be improved in some way, of course it should be. But I wouldn't say that this is an unreliable means of notifying people. Um, and you know, I go back to a prior point. If you haven't voted in your state for four years, five years, going on six years, you might want to call. Uh, that's not the U.S. mail. Uh, you could use the telephone or you could, uh, in some states, check online and see whether you're registered to vote. You know, and that's that's a valuable exercise, and that'll ensure that come Election Day you're not hit with some surprise. But even if you were hit with the surprise and it were prior to the expiration of the four- to six-year period, you'd be allowed to vote. You wouldn't be stopped. And, you know, as I said, also in 16 states, you could register the same day and it would be no problem at all. Or, I'm sorry, in 14 states. Okay. Uh, one concern raised by, I believe, Justice Sotomayor is that 
program like Ohio's would tend to have its burden fall most heavily on certain marginalized groups, for instance, low-income folks that maybe are working a couple of jobs on election day, don't get out to vote for a few cycles, and also might not have very stable addresses, might be moving around a lot. Um, uh, other groups like veterans or service members might also have not super stable addresses or the ability to vote um, too, too reliably. Um, and the idea being that if groups that are already sort of marginalized, now you have a program that burdens them additionally and maybe uh, ends up having policy uh, written that, that reflects their needs less. Uh, you know, that's obviously a, a problem. I guess, what, what is your response to, to that particular concern about this program burdening um, over much uh, certain groups? Well, just first, you know, in theory, all election integrity provisions and uh, requirements can be argued to have a differential impact depending on how you want to look at them. That's just the nature of, of, of statutes. I mean, they're, they're going to treat people differently. Um, and, I, you know, it, you could argue that the differential impact is more or less unfair. Of course, it can impact uh, protected groups on the basis of race or, or ethnicity or religion and so forth in a different way or do so as a matter of policy. But, you know, election integrity provisions are like any law. They're going to have consequences just by the very fact that they exist. And sometimes you can't get around that. Um, in terms of the data itself, I would tell you that it's just not there to support what Justice Sotomayor was arguing. That argument is often suggested or made as a matter of theory. It is not borne out in practice. Uh, as a related example, although it is a different issue, voter ID has been implemented in a number of states, and this was over a number of dire warnings that this would have a differential impact on minority voters, on elderly voters, on veterans, you know, on a number of groups, and it just hasn't turned out that way. In Alabama most recently, minority turnout was up. In North Carolina, after a voter ID law was uh, first partially and then fully implemented, uh, minority turnout was up in all categories, um, both in the primary and in the general. In Tennessee and in Georgia, the same uh, experience has been observed. Uh, perhaps this gets back to, as, as a theoretical matter, what I was talking about before, which is that it's simply not that hard to register to vote. Uh, but whatever the reason, the predicted outcome has not come to pass. Maybe the, the most cynical take of, of, of folks on the opposing side of this issue would be that this is a bit of an end run around the NVRA's prohibition against knocking folks off the voter rolls due to non-voting, that just sort of inserting that that notice um, doesn't change the fact that the notice is, is triggered by one instance or two years, I suppose, of, of non-voting. Um, I think one of the pieces of the NVRA's uh, section relating to, to keeping rolls trimmed and, and, and accurate is, um, you know, you, you want to remove people that have moved. Um, and that's theoretically what this notice is doing. Um, but what if you used more reliable in, indicia of, of folks having moved, like information from uh, DMV if they, they change their address or from the, the post office if they, they send a forwarding address, just some sort of uh, information that actually re re more closely relates to a person having moved as opposed to just them having not showed up to the polls for a couple of years? Well, I, at the most practical level, my response would be 
that uh, whatever you chose would be subject to lawsuits as well, possibly by the same kinds of plaintiffs. I mean, uh, the postal system, its accuracy has been attacked in uh, other lawsuits. Um, you know, really nothing that you would use as an alternative has not been subject at some time to an argument in court that it's just not that accurate and not a good basis to use to see whether people are still registered to vote. Indeed, in the oral argument, counsel for the plaintiffs in this case argued that even if a confirmation letter were sent uniformly to every voter in the state, in other words, not differentiating between those who haven't voted for two years, just send it to everyone, he argued that that would violate the law. All right. So I, you know, I I don't know that uh, there's any sort of safe ground that would be not subject to challenge or lawsuit. And look, the the bottom line is the NVRA doesn't contain any requirement that there be any particular procedure used prior to sending an address confirmation notice. It leaves that up to the states, and the states have been very reasonable, I think, and inventive in coming up with reasonable triggers to determine that someone may not be in the state anymore. Um, and they're in the best, best position, really, to do that. And what they've come up with has included not just Ohio's approach, but a lot of different ways to try to determine whether this is so. And even when they do so, uh, when they undertake their programs, as I said, there's such a, a bias in favor of keeping the voter on the roll for years regardless of whatever evidence you have that they may have moved, that I think voters are very safe and should feel very safe. They're not going to be kicked off the rolls without their knowledge or by accident. It will take an event or a, a you know year's worth of non-event, non-voting, before anyone's voter registration is um, you know put in jeopardy. And even then, it won't be put in jeopardy until they first receive a letter which they could respond to and derail the whole process. So I, I just, um, while, while it, it's a useful argument perhaps to say that there might be other ways to identify people who may have moved, all of those are going to be subject to challenge as well. And I think the, the Congress was wise to leave that entire field to the states. Sure. Okay, just one, one last one. I haven't had a chance to either listen or, or read the the arguments. Uh, do you have a, a good sense of how the court might be feeling about the Sixth Circuit's ruling here? It seems it could be a bit up, up in the air. What's, what's your take? A couple things. Um, first, in my own view of, of the cases, and I, you know, you're talking to an advocate, and so you have to take it for what it's worth and with whatever grains of salt you care to take it with. But <laughs> the fact is that I think that the Sixth Circuit's two judges' interpretation is not just wrong, but misguided. I think it's wrong-headed. I think it turns the statute on its head. The amendment to the statute in 2002, I thought, was to make crystal clear that whatever restriction there was concerning removing voters for not voting, it didn't apply if you sent them a letter. All right? That seems to me to be the common sense of it. I think that the court is of the same view. First, there's the very fact that they took this case. Uh, very few cases are taken up by the court uh, on appeal, on discretionary appeal. And then, uh, second, the oral argument seemed to suggest that they did not have a lot of patience for the plaintiff's arguments. Even Justice Breyer was asking counsel, 
what are you supposed to, what's the state supposed to do? I mean, how practically are they supposed to clean their voter rolls? What would you have them do? Um, which suggests that the decision uh, in favor of uh, the appellants and the defendant's point of view may be even 6-3 or maybe perhaps even greater. Now, it's very hard to predict what the Supreme Court will do, and I routinely get it wrong, so um, we don't know. But if I had to bet right now, my, my gut tells me that um, this will be comfortably uh, reversed. Okay. Well, well, we'll find out soon enough here in the next few months, but we'll leave it there for now. Uh, Bob Popper, Director of the Election Integrity Project at Judicial Watch, thanks so much for being on the podcast and being so generous with your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Addison Francois is a professor of law at Georgetown and the director of the school's Voting Rights Institute. He's researched and written extensively on issues relating to election law and voting rights and authored an amicus brief opposing Ohio's program. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so you submitted an amicus brief in this case presenting the uh, opposing arguments and viewpoint from that which we just heard. Um, I'd like to, to dig into those legal and, and policy arguments in just a moment, but but first, maybe as, as you do in the brief, describe to me how you would would frame this case. You know, it, the two sides stress sort of competing or arguably conflicting priorities: one electoral integrity, and the other uh, voting rights and voting eligibility. Uh, g- give me your your framing for for this case. The way I think about voting rights is that it ought to be a fundamental right, even though it is not explicitly stated as such in the Constitution, and that we ought to treat it as we treat every or any other right, namely one that um, individuals ought to have full and fair access to, and one that ought not to be curtailed or otherwise interfered to, unless a compelling reason to do so. Now, the way I think about the issue is that from the moment of the country's founding, we designed our voting systems, or we thought about voting rights, as having essentially three qualities. We made it a sort of closed system, we made it a selective system, and we made it a system that was not very welcoming, in the sense that we started from the assumption that only a select few would have the right to vote, And then gradually over time, and sometimes with great difficulty, we slowly extended it to other people. There are other systems in the world that have approached it completely differently, namely that it is an open as opposed to closed system, and it is a universal system as opposed to a selective one. And in those systems, the assumption is that everybody has the right to vote unless one can actively show that in fact you don't. If you believe in a closed system, if you believe in a selective system, then obviously you're always going to emphasize the issue of fraud. You're always going to be look on the lookout for fraud. And you're always going to try to exclude as much people as possible unless you can affirmatively demonstrate that they belong. Whereas if you believe in an open system, you take the opposite approach. Now the irony of, of, of this is that those who tend to look at it from the perspective of thought have had an awful hard time ever demonstrating that there is any significant 
instances of fraud in the system. So if you think of it as a white man, it seems sort of counterintuitive to assume that folks who are seeking to exercise that right don't legitimately have that right unless they actively demonstrate to you that they do something that we don't do for anything else. So when I think of voting rights, my perspective obviously is different from some other folks, namely I don't start with the assumption at all that in fact one not ought to exercise it unless one can ensure that one has the right. I started from the from the complete opposite perspective. Okay, maybe maybe we could unpack one more thing here at the top. The the brief that you submitted was on behalf of Vote Vets, uh, an organization as mm-hmm. the name suggests it advancing the causes that matter to servicemen and, and veterans. In what ways does that group of people, in, in what ways are they particularly impacted by, by the outcome of, of this case? You know, like Ohio's program has the tendency to, to burden veterans and service people uh, more so than, than other groups. How, how is that so? Well, uh, let me discuss first sort of the practical ways in which uh, veterans, uh, which include active service members, veterans and also veterans who are actually in schools are affected and then also talk about why it is that we believe from a philosophical perspective it was particularly important and it's particularly important to think about their voting rights. Um, overall as a group approximately 71 percent of service members tend to be between the ages of 18 to 24 a fairly large percentage uh, of the armed forces. Now, if you look at it from that perspective, it is also the case that that particular cohort of 18 to 24 in the general population tends to be the one that votes at a much, much lower rate than any other age cohort in the population. So combine those two things, the fact that better, uh, the service, various armed services consists of such a large segment of young people and that young people in general tend to vote at a lower rate, what you're looking at then when you look at um, you know, service members is that they tend to be a particularly vulnerable population when it comes to folks exercising their voting rights. And the numbers bear that out. Over the last decades or so, while the percentage of people who are registered to vote and in fact are voting have gone steadily up, particularly since the enactment of uh, NVRA, the opposite has been true for service members. The numbers have significantly and steadily gone down. So, that being the case, anytime you adopt any measures, such as Ohio's supplemental process, that tends to depress or exacerbate the ability of people to vote, one population that's going to be disproportionately affected by that are going to be active service members, veterans, and members of the armed forces who happen to be students. That's what's going to happen, and the numbers have shown that to be the case. So that's why we thought it was particularly important to look at the process through their eyes. Secondly, from a broader philosophical perspective, we thought it was particularly important to do so First, for a couple of reasons. Number one, when we speak of the military, we always frame the narrative of the military as there being 
um, present to defend our freedom, including presumably the right to vote. So we thought, if that's the right word, that it's particularly ironic that we hold the military as being those who defend our precious rights and the voting rights, and yet we seem to care so little about the members' ability to exercise that right. Right? Um, secondly, it is the case that almost universally, the one institution in American life that is the most respected tends to be the military, far more than Congress, far more than the presidency, even far more than the courts. I think approximately the last survey that I saw, close to 86% of the public have a positive view of the military as opposed to, say, numbers are in the teens when it comes to Congress or the presidency, and of course it's higher for the court. And so our perspective was that if indeed we hold the military in such high esteem, then surely we ought to be willing to do what it takes to make sure that they're able to exercise what as precious as the right to vote. So those two ideas then, both the practical consequence it has those certain measures has in depressing uh, access to vote for service members, as well as the narrative of what we purport to hold dear when it comes to them. That's the reason why we thought that it was particularly important in this case. Okay, uh, now drilling down on the, the legal dispute here, it's it's fairly simply explained, if not resolved, that it was a, a matter of statutory interpretation. One side here uh, thinks Ohio's program is sanctioned by and and, and and okay, according to that statute you mentioned, the National Voter Registration Act, um, mm-hmm. you believe that, that that law, in fact, proscribes this program that Ohio uses to disqualify inactive voters who don't return um, confirmation notices sent to see if they're still living in the same place. Um, how exactly do you do you read that law to uh, to see it as as proscribing this uh, supplemental process Ohio uses? Let's step back a, a bit and talk about the NVRA and how it was enacted. The NVRA was essentially a bipartisan conservation that was done as a compromise between those who wanted to increase access to the system and those who wanted to, um, quote-unquote, uh, guarantee um, against fraud. Roughly speaking, it broke down along political lines. Uh, Democratic members who voted for the law were much more, were very interested in increasing voter participation. Republican members of Congress who voted for the law were much more interested in the, um, you know, forwarded integrity aspect of it. But it is fair to say, at least based on our reading of the statute, that the overall, overall purpose of the statute was to essentially increase voter access and voter participation. It was, to put it bluntly, a way to begin to sort of correct for the fact that among the world's, you know, Western democracies, the U.S. has one of the lowest, if not the lowest, voter participation rate in the world. And the statute worked um, in the years that it passed. They, we significantly increased both voter registration as well as voter participation. The aspect of the statute that was designed to um, to maintain the integrity of the system, from our perspective, were never designed to encourage folks, to encourage states to kick people off the walls. It was simply um, a set of system that was designed to encourage the states 
to maintain the accuracy of their roles. Philosophically, there's a huge difference between, say, making sure the roles are accurate as opposed to using any excuse, if you will, to kick people off the wall. And from our perspective, that's precisely what the Ohio system is doing. It is not really designed to make sure that the walls are accurate. It is simply designed to sift through them and to find any reason or excuse to keep people off. And that we think violates not just the letter, but the spirit of the statute. Okay, now there's, there's one other statutory piece here, an amendment eight years later from the Help America Vote Act um, that's also the center mm-hmm. of a dispute there. Um, the amendment does reference um, this confirmation process, um, not specifically the, the type Ohio uses, but um, roughly the sort of process where a state can send out a notice and then uh, mm-hmm. revoke eligibility after uh, two general federal elections if notice if the notice isn't returned. Um, it says you know, nothing in that amendment should be read to sort of uh, prohibit that confirmation notice process. But I think it, it also says, you know, the, the, the Congress wants to make clear voter inactivity is not to be the basis of uh, folks being kicked off voter rolls. Um, I guess tell me about the exactly. dispute over, over that amendment. Well, I mean, think about it. Again, we have to go back to 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 the history of the statute. As you as you know, Hava was enacted in the wake of the debacle of the 2000 election, and the whole point of the statute wasn't about reducing the voter rolls or kicking anybody off the rolls. The point of Hava overall, the full spirit of Hava, was to design a system that would as much as possible, avoid of recurrence of the dispute we had in Florida during Bush v. Gore. Um, so therefore, it, in, it did a, f- a few things. One of the things that it did was to require the state to implement measures pursuant to which voters, when they walk into the voting booth, had an opportunity to basically double-check what they were voting. Uh, it implemented system pursuant to which you could sort of audit the vote. And of course, it also encouraged the states to maintain a central database so as to be accurate um, uh, in their system. And that was the point. The point of HAVA was to promote tra- transparency and accuracy. The way that, in fact, some states have been using it has not been about accuracy or transparency. But it simply has been a way to essentially winnow out the system, winnow out people from the roles, even though there are no reasons to do so. And again, you know, the best way to think about it is to essentially focus on the effect it has on veterans and it, or, or on active service members. If you think about, as we discussed in great detail in our brief, the means by which or the system by which service members receive mail, um, and the transient nature of where they live, whether they are deployed or not, what you see, what you come to realize is that it's extraordinarily easy for somebody who's an active service member to be kicked off the road um, for no apparent reason other than the change of address or perhaps because they haven't voted in the last couple of cycles through no fault of their own, maybe because 
they were deployed overseas or if not deployed overseas, they were actually stationed in a place. It wasn't very convenient for them to go. And what our basic point is, and I think uh, others also have made a similar point, is that if you read the statutes overall, as opposed to focusing on very, very narrow language in them, neither NVRA nor other were ever intended to provide a basis to simply kick off people from the walls, as opposed to devising a system to make sure that the walls were accurate. Those are two very different things. Okay, I wanted to get your take on on the concept of of causation here. If if the parties dispute the proper interpretation of these statutes, one thing that they seem to agree on is that the the statutes do uh, prevent states from using voter inactivity um, as a basis for disqualifying voters. Um, But then the question is, what Mm -hmm. does um, does cause mean? So here the other side will say, well, look, it's not voter inactivity that's causing the uh, disqualification. It's just that they... Uh, these these uh, voters sent notices didn't return the notice, and and so that's the cause here. Um, whereas you, your side will argue that in fact the the cause is voter inactivity. I suppose what what is your approach to to this question? The point is just what you said. If what the argument is that it's not inactivity um, that causes um, you to be kicked off the wall, but rather the failure to return the notice. Well, again, let's look at it from the perspective of a veteran, uh, of a veteran member. Um, um, as you know, if you are an active member, you receive your mail through the military mail system, the Baltimore military post office system. Now, under that system, there is not a way by which if you receive mail at an old address, that is a civilian system, that that mail is automatically forwarded to a military system. There doesn't exist a process for doing that. Whether what happens is that if you receive mail, say, at your old address, either you must have made arrangements ahead of time to make sure it is forwarded to you, or perhaps you have someone living there who takes care to make sure that it is forwarded to you. But supposing neither of these things happen, then it means that when you fail to return that notice, essentially, you're going to be kicked off the rolls. And you will never know that you've been kicked off the roll until it is too late, until you seek the right to vote. So the question becomes then, again, if you look at this very particular, concrete, and certainly not unusual case at all, of that service member, under what fair reading of either NCRA or HAVA can you possibly justify that process? I don't think you can. Certainly not in the name of integrity or preventing voter fraud. Okay, let me pitch uh, just a couple of other sort of countervailing arguments and points made by the opposing side here. One being that the, the burden, uh, even accepting the reality that certain perfectly eligible voters, including service members, will be disqualified uh, for voting, having their registration uh, revoked. Um, notwithstanding that reality, the, the, the burden is still not so terribly great. Those folks in advance of the election they plan to vote in could you know, double check if they're registered. If not, go ahead and re-register. And even if they don't realize it until the day of the election in, in many states, although I don't think the majority, um, you can register the same day that you vote. Um, what would your response be that this is not such an extreme deprivation or 
penalty against folks that uh, are entitled to vote that have their registration revoked? Let me give you a couple of numbers. One of the one of the other statute that um, we should talk about is, and I don't know if you've discussed that with your other guests, is your cover. Um, uh, the system that is designed to help uniform members as well as citizens who are stationed overseas um, to vote. Um, the statute specifically is called the Uniform and Overseas Citizens Absentee Voting Act. And it has a number of provisions that are, that applies to uniform civil members as well as overseas members and are designed to make it easier for them to vote and to count their ballot. But if we were to focus purely on, say, the last election cycle, here's um, what we know. What your cover does is to permit you to request a special ballot, particularly if you're not going to be present to vote and for you to basically send in that ballot for it to be counted. But here's what we know. In 2016 election, only 68.1% of the Eurocava ballots were counted nationally. That's it. That's an extraordinarily low number percentage. Now, what that means is that Eurocava, which is a law that is specifically designed to address and alleviate some of the difficulties that uniform members experience in exercising their right to vote. Even that law, which is designed to do that, is not very effective in solving the problem if you consider the fact that over 30% of ballots filed using your cover uh, system were not counted after they were filed. That's an extraordinarily high number, right? So I don't then believe that that burden is as easily overcome as opponents argue, right? So that's number one. Number two, the idea, again, if you're focusing fewer on service members, that they kind of, it should be simple enough to overcome that burden. Again, it's not true particularly if you consider demographics of what we're talking about. If you consider the fact that the overwhelming majority of these individuals are between the ages of 18 to 24, that most of them are going through moments in their lives that are extraordinarily stressful, and there are a lot of other things that is going on, right? It is unreasonable then to say that the, of all the things that they have to think about and be concerned about and worry about in entering and being in the armed service, it should be a simple matter enough to make sure that they're registered in the right place, that they request a proper ballot on the Euro cover, and that they make sure that their normal civilian mail is properly forwarded to uh, the military system. It is not that simple. But as a broader point, if voting is a right, a fundamental right, in how many other instances do we ever say to folks that, yes, you have a constitutional right, but unless you exercise it in exactly the right way, and unless you jump through all the hoops that you're supposed to jump through, 
we're going to take it away from you until or unless you demonstrate that you ought to have it back. We certainly don't do that for speech. We certainly don't do that for religion. Why should we do it for voting? One one other counter-argument I might pose is that the statute, the NVRA, does call for states to make reasonable efforts, uh, as you mentioned, as a sort of a compromise bill helping folks to vote, but also instructing states to to call their roles of folks that have either deceased or relocated outside the voting district. Um, there's only, I suppose, so many different ways that can be done identifying uh, no longer eligible voters. What would a, a better, more appropriate system look like if not this one? I think this is a point Justice Breyer mentioned in an argument that um, you know this, this does seem like one fairly viable way to do it. What, what would a better way to do it be that, in, in your view, would um, fit uh, within the restrictions of the NVRA? I think there are a number of ways it can be done, but I think before it can be one get to the specifics of the practical ways any one particular may do it. I think there is an initial question that has to be asked. And the initial question is this. Whatever measures a particular jurisdiction adopts, whether it be under NVRA or under HAVA, right? Given the nature of these provisions, what exactly is the goal that that jurisdiction is seeking to achieve? Is the goal to promote what these statutes were designed to do in the first place, namely increase both voter registration and voter participation, or is it not? Is the goal to do what these statutes were designed to do, namely um, make the system easier and fairer for people to access, or is it not? Because I think that's the difficulty that we have whenever we get caught in talking about specific provisions that particular jurisdictions may or may not adopt, a conversation that also occurs in the context of voter ID. Because I think the first other question that ought to be answered is, why is Ohio doing what it's doing? What is its goal? And if you look at the way that this process was enacted, along with others around the country, including voter IDs and other processes, where um, states clean on the votes. It is very, very difficult to come to any other conclusion other than the fact that the primary motivating factor seems to be to simply reduce the number of people who are on the votes. Okay, maybe just um, one last one, having had a chance to either listen or read, read the arguments here, do you have a sense of which way the court might might be leaning? Um, seems like uh, it could it could be a bit up, up in the air at this moment. It's hard to predict, um, you know, for a couple of reasons. Number one, there are instances, particularly when it comes to voting rights, the usual sort of predictable split among the so-called liberal wing and conservative wing of the court um, doesn't necessarily um, apply, right? The second thing is something that we mentioned a bit earlier in our conversation, namely that it is possible to read decisions of the Supreme Court when it comes to voting and really come to the conclusion that voting is one of the most important right that we have. The court certainly tends to wax poetic about um, 
about that, right? And yet, and yet, when you think about the practical ways in which the court actually issues a decision, it doesn't really treat voting as a fundamental right because, usually speaking, whenever it considers restrictions, right, restrictions on the right, it doesn't subject those restrictions to strict scrutiny as it would for, say, free speech or religion or privacy, right? So I'm not necessarily optimistic, right, that the court um, will strike down the fundamental system that um, Ohio has has enacted. Um, I'm not necessarily optimistic, but beyond that, um, I can't be more specific in my prediction, if you will. Okay, well, we'll we'll find out soon enough. We can go ahead and, and leave it there for now. Addison Francois, professor at Georgetown Law School. Thanks so much for being on our podcast. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. And with that, our program for January nineteenth, two thousand eighteen, is complete. Thanks so much for tuning in. It's much appreciated. Hope you enjoyed it. I'm Brian Cardow. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.